This episode of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is sponsored by Barry. For your awards consideration, Max presents Barry, the Emmy award-winning HBO original series starring Bill Hader as the hitman for hire, desperately trying to shed his old life. While Barry has eliminated many of the external factors that pushed him towards violence, he soon discovers they weren't the only forces at play. Cinema is also at play, everyone. Back for a fourth and final season, do not miss the critically acclaimed series that Rolling Stone calls Incredible, a masterpiece. All episodes of Barry are now streaming on Max. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer on the craft team over at IndieWire. And today we are continuing our sort of Emmy series uh, with a show that is just jam-packed with ideas and humor and gags and heists and roller coasters and also the Holy Grail. That is right. I got the chance back in April to speak to Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, the co-creators of Mrs. Davis. Our usual disclaimer here that this was recorded before the writer's strike began and therefore does not represent either of these two writers doing promotion during the strike. April was also before excerpts from Burn It Down, Maureen Ryan's look at toxic cultures in Hollywood came out. Uh, so obviously I did not address any of the accounts of Damon Lindelof's management of the writer's room back on Lost. There are posts on the site that link out to um, that excerpt about Lost if you want to check it out. But in this episode, you will hear Tara and Damon talk about how the pandemic shaped their initial idea from an even earlier delightfully fucked up idea of Tara's. Uh, they talk about the balance of tone that they tried to find in structuring Mrs. Davis, the balance of miracles and magic, high and low entertainment, technology and religion that they wanted to weave together through a delightful Venn diagram of Looney Tunes, Monty Python, and Quentin Tarantino. I was fascinated by this discussion. I am fascinated by the ideas explored on the show. Uh, and so I hope that you get a lot out of this conversation with the co-creators of Mrs. Davis. At what point did this idea coalesce? Did you get like hit a wall in the pandemic? And we're like, no we must have Betty Gilpin be swallowed by a whale. Oh my God, that would just, what if it was that? <laughs> if that was the starting place, I think the series probably wouldn't exist. You got to really work your way up to whale. And uh, I think, you know, people uh, sort of ask us, having been through the journey of, of these eight episodes, sort of like, did you have a line? What was a line? You know, clearly not because you had your your lead get swallowed by a whale, but... I think from the jump, we had sort of just been like pushing the line or or actively jumping over it. Um, and I think it just amounted to gaining trust from our partners who who let us do this. And so when you get to you get to whale, they say, huh, how are you going to execute that? But we're going to let you try. We're going to at least let you pitch us in execution before just flat out shutting it down. So so to their credit. They let us spend some time scientifically figuring out what we did, that the, that the sperm whale is the only whale that could uh, actually consume a human being. Good to know. Fun fact. Yeah. And, and as for, you know, how it all started, it wasn't that we hit a wall in the pandemic. It's that the pandemic basically was the kind of origin story of 
at least the most significant part of Mrs. Davis, which is the Mrs. Davis part. And Tara had written a, a script about nuns, sort of dystopic, um, but funny, uh, um, post-apocalyptic um, convent story with dying children, as one does, that I was sort of like, this is amazing. Who is Tara Hernandez? And, oh, she's a writer on the Big Bang Theory and Young Sheldon. Somewhere in the Venn diagram it, of this multicam writer is this voice. I must meet with this person. And so we sat down and started to talk about nuns and where Tara was in her career and that she was more than ready to become a showrunner herself. And then COVID hit. Um, she was the last in-person meeting that I had. And so I think in the early days of the pandemic, as we were talking, continuing to sort of further the idea of what is a show with nuns, we were also sort of um, very confused about COVID and how long it was going to last and whether or not we were, it was safe to see our loved ones. And it, you know, in those early days, we were washing our groceries and disinfecting things and, and wondering whether that was ridiculous. It felt a little ridiculous, but at the same time, the process of doing it created this kind of coping mechanism of safety. And then Tara just said, I wish there was an app that would tell us what to do. And I was like, oh, that sounds like an idea for a television show. And then the rest is history. The end. Whales. And then the next thing you know, yeah, whales. Incredible. And then whales. That's very, very interesting because what strikes me about the show and, and sort of its blend of comedy and, and seriousness, like sort of philosophical ideas and then sort of the, the gloriously low art of Reno magic is that it's it's not just about sort of our wariness for AI and and apps. It's about relationships and, and this mother-daughter relationship. And I'm so curious kind of like what y'all's North Star was in plotting this very twisty story. I, I think of all the sort of uh, classifications or, you know, log lines that get thrown at this show, uh, you know, it's a quest, it's holy grail it's you know none versus ai sort of this backdoor examination of the female relationships and female dynamics specifically mother and daughters became very real interest to us and um i think specifically from the point of view of like we knew that mrs davis was going to be female presenting she was going to be kind nurturing teacher like mother like you know sort of society's mom. Um, and then, you know, when we had developed Simone and knew that a nun was at the center and that, you know, we, we all know nuns, or at least if you've seen Sound of Music, no nuns have mother superiors and a mother figure, you know, in, in the convent. And so, you know, we had that as an interesting point. And then, you know, I think we were both intensely interested in like, who becomes a nun, you know, sort of in modern times and like, what, what sort of life did she have pre-convent and who was her mother and who who was her mother inferior as Celeste identifies herself. So it just it felt like we couldn't get through the series without making those examinations. Um, and so any any chance we got to look at the mother daughter or the mother child as we, you know, eventually unpack with with Jay and his own mother in episode seven and and the love uh but love that can almost sometimes 
turn dangerous or be blinded by obsession or protection. Uh, you know, as we saw Matilda and, and Clara's relationship play out, it just felt like this is of interest to me. This is of interest to to Damon and our writers. So anytime we can we can go at that theme, we're going to. Was this always kind of an eight episode arc or did it have other permutations or or other? I'm curious how you guys settled on that. When we first started talking about the show, it was going to be 10 episodes. We'd written a pilot, um, Tara and I, and talked about what the sort of arc of the Grail quest was going to be. But it, it wasn't really until that we onboarded the other writers and began to talk about, okay, here's what needs to happen in episode two. Um, and here's what happens in the finale and how much story is there uh, in between those two poles. That conversation happened simultaneous to, to be quite frank, the production conversation, which is like, how are we actually going to make this thing? Where are we going to make this thing? It feels like we can certainly do Los Angeles for Reno, but once we get into, we want this to be a globe trotting adventure. We definitely knew that we were heading for the Vatican. We knew that we wanted Arthurian sort of like legend to be part of it. So we were going to be in the UK and that there was going to be this uh, adventure at sea where like, how are we going to pull this off and what's it going to cost? And then very quickly, we sort of arrived at the conclusion of in order to maximize our production value, the best way to approach it would be to do it in eight episodes. And, um, and that's the number that we arrived at. And so we started breaking the stories and plotting and pacing accordingly. Yeah, I would love to sort of dig into kind of, it feels like a show that because it's so ambitious has to be very deliberate about what its visual style is and how how elastic the world hmm. is, if that makes sense. I would love to to hear y'all talk about sort of the, the look of Mrs. Davis. I'm only laughing because it's sort of like the thing about elastic is it does snap, <laughs> you know? Like if you put if you pull it too tight, but I'll I'll let Tara feel that one. Yeah, and I I think you know our our jobs as writers is to communicate so much on the page and to communicate tone, but it is absolutely our our directors and our pilot directors specifically for setting the world and onboarding individuals who have you know a shared vision. And um, when we learned that Owen Harris was available and potentially interested. Both Damon and I were um, huge, are huge fans of Black Mirror, and he had done uh, three episodes, but like two of our favorite, my favorite episodes, Striking Vipers and San Junipero. And I think, you know, the worlds he created within that that are sort of timeless um, or, you know, very timely as, as far as like the 80s aesthetic, but but still have this, you know, that the technology isn't you know used as like flying cars and you know everything's like you know everyone's got a jet pack but that feels you know five minutes in the future and like totally you know decades away I think we both thought from a from a aesthetic standpoint that is so incredibly interesting and then you know Owen's British so we brought him over here and said now do Americana and so to get like British Americana was just like also added and contributed to the fun, you know, sort of his his point of view. And I think, you know, he really leaned on, 
you know, Tarantino and Tony Scott and and just how he brought it to life. And then once he gets grounded that, we say, now do Looney Tunes. And uh, all in that is is completely owed to him and his his um, abilities and his craftspeople. That's brilliant. And yeah, there's something like extra Americana about the show and about Reno, genuinely. Um, so it feels right. It- I love it. I love Reno. I'm curious with all the diff. There's a lot of different generic elements in in the mix on the series. I'm curious about the choice to have our introduction to Simone and sort of the final shot be her on horseback and the westernness of it. Yeah, I mean, early on we we described her as as a gunslinger, although the show has no guns um, except for a, a tranquilizer gun. Um, but I think it it evokes a certain level of Americana. It's a hero, a hero on a white horse, you know, it is immediately evocative of, you know, anything from like, yes, the 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 cowboy to Gandalf, like, you know, only heroes ride white horses. Um, I'm sure the internet can dispute that, but it felt like um, yeah, and I think it's it's intensely physical and incredible and like connects her to nature but it is feminine I will say like you know we we didn't shy away from that idea I think somewhere in the script when we were writing the pilot you know there's a line about you know the German not believing that Simone can't care about her horse because all girls care about is horses you know kind of thing and we, we sort of poked fun at that um and so I think this idea of opening and closing with it is a return to nature or return to some femininity, but a return to partnership and that she, you know, unlike the opening, she has found some common ground with Wiley, but like he's not, he's on the back of the horse, you know, she's still, she's still holding the reins and that will be their relationship. And, you know, he's come to a place where he can settle on that. He doesn't have the expectation that he's in the driver's seat as maybe he did uh, in the pilot. And we just thought it was a great, sort of visual for for them both to send your heroes off into the sunset how meta all that is based on mine and Tony's <laughs> sure. relationship is that too you know, like that, <laughs> i do think that it does you know it does echo the process by which the show was made when you're sort of building something that you know is going to be a little bit of uh, a ride not necessarily the ride that wiley goes on at the end of the show but a ride and have like lots of absurdist elements and lots of kind of false bottoms to it. I'm curious how you structure that in a room or just amongst each other. Is it uh, working backwards from the ending? Is it sort of having two poles and trying to figure out how they connect? I'm curious kind of how in terms of not just plot, but tone, you sort of stick this thing together. I think in addition to a lot of the influences that Tara talked about, and I think that you know, in the overlapping Venn diagram of Quentin Tarantino's writing and Looney Tunes or and Monty Python is this sort of idea of zaniness and unpredictability. And in, in, if you're looking solely in the Tarantino circle of that Venn diagram, there's also a level of like kind of over the top violence. And you so like, and we would often talk about the idea of like, there's a way to do this sword fight in the opening of the show, which is ultimately going to be revealed to be a commercial where you're expected to take the violence seriously. But if we just make a couple, if we make it a little bit too bloody and choreograph it with a certain degree of kind of absurdity, then the audience is kind of left wondering how seriously are they supposed to take it? If you're an audience member, 
that can be a bit disquieting because you don't know what the tone is. But for us, that is kind of the bandwidth that which life is transmitting. We don't know what it is. And that's to me, the most exciting storytelling space where you enter into the realm of the indescribable and you say, you just have to watch it. And I think that that's all meta on the micro level of the actual story design, particularly Tara, um, I think really, and I think part of this was because of her experience with Teller on Bang, but like we talked about Penn and Teller a lot and the way that they view magic and deconstruct magic. But at the same time, there's the act that's Penn and Teller, and then there's just Teller. And Teller is actually representative of this kind of more beautiful performance, emotional aspect of magic. And Tara sent me this podcast where they deconstruct this trick that, um, that Teller does. Uh, it's not quite a trick. It's a, it's a performance piece with a, with a ball, right? And the red ball kind of functions like a, like a dog, it, it gets, uh, you know, kind of anthropomorphized. And I, and I think that that sort of idea of like the show wanting to walk that line between what you would call Sarah, the lowness of Reno magic. That is to say like the cheesy sort of like sawing a woman in half, you know, kind of like, okay, it's just stagecraft. And then the great grand mystery of religious thought and miracles and and sort of like, where does one end and the other one begin? And what's stagecraft and what's quote unquote real? Um, and for Simone to kind of be the barometer of that and for Mrs. Davis to sort of like uncover the emotionality of a force. And I think that like, ultimately this to me is the fundamental magnet of all the storytelling that I'm really drawn to, which is this same question that the philosophers have been wrestling with for as long as philosophers have been philosophizing, which is what is free will and what is a force? Ultimately, this idea of predestination or re religious thought is that it's all a force because God says, well, these are the things that we're supposed to do. And this is, and this is the path that you are on versus I have agency in the decisions that I make. And so how can Simone be a a devout believer, the most devout believer that we can think of is a nun, you know, and yet still be anti-force, say like, I need to make these decisions on my own. And yet the show, as it goes on, begins to sh begin to say, and yet look at whose liver you ended up with. You know, you can roll your eyes at the fact that you're the chosen one. And yet it appears that you're the one who's going to set the Messiah free from some level of a never-ending service. It's you, Simone, you and you alone. So the show was kind of a stealth chosen one journey all along with, but at the same time, kind of trolling it. It's, it's a, it's a delicate balance. Not sure we, we got it right, but boy, was it fun up there on the wire. Amazing. I mean, I was going to ask because magic seems so fundamental, both to the mechanics of the show and also to like how we approach science and religion, that a little bit of magic is necessary. If, if it started with, I wish there was an app that could tell us how to navigate COVID, when did stage magic come into it? Yeah, I mean, is it the, you know, the Arthur C. Clarke quote, like any significant technology is going to, is akin to magic, you know, so it's always been 
been in in the language and to go back to Damon's point about you know I I had the incredible privilege of working on the Big Bang Theory and getting to meet Teller and his approach to to stage magic and what I was always interested in was you know the craft and engineering and this beautiful trick that he did called the red ball where you know it it is anthropomorphized he is his character has this real relationship when when the ball is sort of you know being playful with him and the end of the trick they they cut the string they he takes out a pair of scissors and we see that oh but the ball was on the string the whole time which could be sad but the faith is like wow he he navigated this whole movement around the stage and it was up and down with with a string there and that is its own sense of magic and almost even more so the the human intervention element um you know and then i also got to meet stephen hawking working at warner brothers whose literal job is to unpack the universe and understand it and his his knowledge and you know for him to sort of admit you know there are these deep unknowns like just opening the space and and those things coexisting together has always been fascinating so it felt to to Damon's point we could do the high and the low we could do the you know pick a card any card and have Simone you know have falafel in this in this space with the messiah that that was interesting to us and and so we attempted it and here we are I feel like Jay and Wiley are both sort of poles and Simone is attracted and navigates between them. Um, and that feels very mm-hmm. intentional too. High and low. And look, you know, I mean, we can talk all we want about how ambitious the show is. At the same time, it's a show. And I think that part of like what really illuminated the clarity of this particular relationship with Jay when Tara first pitched it was, hey, it's a love triangle, you know? Like, I think we already had Wiley and this sort of idea of like, okay, so the conflict is he's her ex and she's a nun. And they're, and now that she's celibate, she they, they can't hook up. Okay, got it. But then Tara was like, but she's not celibate. She's married to Jesus. And I was like, yeah, right, like figuratively. And Tara was like, but what if, literally? And then I was like, I have to call you back. Um, It was just some ideas are so overwhelming. And as particularly when they're presented with such confidence. And then I was like, holy shit, okay, I guess we're doing that. And, but Tara took the lead and I never doubted it. I just was like scared which I think is when people first experience it in the show, at least we're, we're now talking to people who watch the show and we're unspoiled. And like when that moment first happens, you know, I think that m- most people go through that experience of like, no, and then like, okay, okay, I'm interested. And I think that's by design because it's bold without bragging about how bold it is. It's natural. Of course, Tara was like, yeah, nuns are married to Jesus. What are you, what's the problem? It says so right on the tin. She had a wedding. We, had, we saw it. We saw the aftermath of that wedding. No, oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like that cliche of, of using all parts of the buffalo. Thank you. Hippo in our case. Oh, there you go. Can I ask uh, a little bit about, I had 
the the pleasure to talk to Vicky Thomas a little bit about this incredible cast and kind of how you finally landed on Betty Gilpin as sort of the right, yeah, the right person to embody Simone. We far from landed on her. She sort of like was existing in the sky in a parachute. We're like, here, here, and here's the hell of that. Please come, come play with us. Yeah, I mean, she just is, she is Simone. The show doesn't work without her in that role and, and her leadership both on and off the set. One thing, you know, in addition to all the incredible things she she brought to the character, she really uh she really elevated the the comedy in it. She really wanted to embrace that. I think, you know, her her bravery as a performer uh made it so that she could do again the highs and the lows and could really throw herself at it and it's, you know, coming from comedy myself, it's so hard to do and make natural and be natural and just it's it is one of those you got it or you don't and and Betty's got it but she's got she's got everything and I think she was embracing the fact that she could put all of these skills she had developed over her career into into use in this one role and and we're so glad that you know we were able to give her that foundation to start from Amazing. Did anything sort of change about Simone, your idea of Simone, once she was um, handling her? I think it was both myself and just Betty. Like, I I think in the pilot, we really thought Simone was not going to curse. And then she's just a sailor, you know, and I think that's being outside of the walls of the combat. That's being back with Wiley, sort of the the Simone stripping away and the, the Lizzie sort of coming back in and I gotta say like she she's so funny and I I was raised in a household or you know my dad was kind of like if the f word makes a sentence more funny than like go use it so um that was that was probably like one of the bigger things there's there's so many because I mean we we can't take credit for for that performance it's so great we can only sort of give her give her the sandbox and then she's gonna do what she's going to do with it. But yeah, she she curses like a sailor. She just does. Outstanding. Yeah, that's fucking great. <laughs> Speaking of sandbox, I would love to ask, it feels like this is a show where y'all got to leave so much out on the field. If there was something, either a stylistic tick or sort of a, a reveal or just sort of a set piece um, that you got to bring to this show that you had wanted to do for a really long time. I guess... For us, the moment that we sort of seized on the idea of it being a grail quest, and there were two sort of like simultaneous things that, there were many things that happened, but two primary things, I think, for both of us. The first was, oh God, a grail quest, you know, like, come on, like, we, we, are, we are failing miserably on the originality quotient. It's the most obvious thing ever. What if we could justify it, you know? What if we could make it different than all the other grail quests that came before? And I think that part of that became sort of like what activates your brain about a grail quest is all the different genres that it, you can do a heist, you can do, you know, uh, you can do Excalibur, you can do uh, National Treasure, you can do Vatican, like the Dan Brown stuff, like, and so, but most importantly, like, why would an algorithm give a shit about the Holy Grail? And then sort of obviously this is the big finale spoiler but the idea of like 
we had already been reading a lot about AI and machine learning. And we read this book called, you look like a thing and I love you. And it was essentially like algorithms are pretty dumb and they misunderstand things all the time. And so if, if an algorithm read the Buffalo Wild Wings, like sort of employee code book and that customer satisfaction is our holy grail, it might go like, okay, I guess I need to get the holy grail if I'm going to achieve hundred percent customer satisfaction, then we're off. And it was sort of like, oh, that feels new. Like now it can be like a really dumb grail quest. But of course, Mrs. Davis doesn't know that the grail is a real thing. What if we were to make it real that like, can we build our own grail mythology? And so the writer's room started, we just kind of came in in week one and Tara was like, okay, question number one is what is the Holy grail? And then where is the Holy grail? Understanding that Jesus is already a character in the show and he might know a thing or two about the Holy grail because it seems to be holy because of him, uh, go for it. And then we iterated and iterated and iterated. And there were so many incredible ideas that came from our collaborators. One of the writers, you know, pitched that it was, uh, it was Christ's goal, you know, and, and pretty early on. And another said it's in a way uh, like sort of as an aside, he was like, I've got three pitches. Each one of them was like a three or four minute long pitch. And then the last thing he said was like, oh, and also like, it could be in a whale. And then everybody just kind of sat up and was like, I was like, oh, Jesus, that it's gonna, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> Tara's eyes are twinkling. She loves it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, we tended to flock towards the things that were the silliest and the hardest. <laughs> and I think like it's a testament to the show that I think that it feels more silly than it does difficult, you know, because the, because the process of making it was immensely difficult, but I think you just you don't see the blood and the sweat and the tears. You only see the joy, maybe. No, I mean, like, I, I feel like you can, as a viewer, sort of feel when people love what they're working on. And there's definitely a lot of that because otherwise the zaniness of it wouldn't work. Yeah, I love the sort of, like, what if we could do a stupid grail quest? And it is incredibly validating to see in media and out someone tell the truth that algorithms are quite dumb because we build them to do very specific things. I'm curious how that kind of, to use a wrong technological word, interfaces with sort of the the final proxy conversation between Simone, her mother, and Mrs. Davis, and how you thought about what would tip Simone one way or another, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it felt like, you know, there, there's two sort of ways to unpack that question, I think. You know, knowing that she was going to go on this journey and through it was going to re-examine some relationships that she, you know, had uh, either abandoned or been abandoned by when she joined the convent. And we were so intensely interested, of course, in her relationship with Wiley, her ex, but, you know, her her mother, you know, we we were always charging towards that final proxy being a moment of getting to sort of look at sort of technology at its best, I guess, where it is something that can facilitate conversations and human conversations that should be happening, you know, IRL, as the kids say. And that was always incredibly interesting to us. Um, so then you look at, you know, she's going to have this final proxy with Celeste, which is going to get to this really human moment where it's going to be 
you know, we, we built Mrs. Davis to be the solve, to give us answers. And, and sometimes we just need that person, whether it's a biological mother or just someone we need to say, like, I'm sorry and it's okay. And like how rewarding that is, you know, Simone having just come off the heels of Mrs. Davis itself or herself going to its own mother and saying, like, did I do it? Did I do a good job? And that sort of validation that the show uh, talks about it just if it was the right arena always for us and we did really feel that um Simone was a character of conviction um not just in the fact that she is a nun but that she just is someone who does what she says in the way she is her mother's daughter her mother told her father go into my workshop and I'll shoot your dick off and lo and behold she did in fact rig a crossbow so we were sort of always aiming that what if Simone stuck by her word and the promise she made in the pilot was going to be honored, which is, you know, it, it it's very difficult to do that because we have to stick by our own convictions and, and see it through. And I think, you know, we spent a good amount of time saying, well, what if we didn't do that? And, and what would it it ultimately look like? But it was very intriguing to say that even with all the information she's gained, even, you know, based on what she's, she's seen of it, she still feels that given her own, you know, the end of her relationship with Jay, that, you know, we all as a society need to, to sort of turn to one another and make our own decisions without anyone in our ear, as she says. Yeah. And it's a species of growing up yeah. a little bit. And you need our mommies to like help us do that. Yeah. Oh, man. I feel like those proxy conversations must have been so much fun to write, just to be able to have a character and then a secondary character who has their own reactions to it. Yeah, I mean, this the stage was set for that so so brilliantly in in the pilot with the with our teacher, and hopefully we're able to talk to to Vicky about the casting of that because it wasn't just a role; it was very much the you know uh, the foundation of how proxies were going to look in the series and and just everything that Kim, the, our actor does on her face and as she's receiving information and then re, regurgitating it for Simone was, was incredible. Final, most important question. Um, at what point was it settled on that her middle name was Danger? I lobbied quite aggressively for my son's middle name to be Adventure uh, so that he could say adventure is my middle name and people would go ha ha and then he'd take out his driver's license and show it and my wife said uh i'm not doing that to him and i was like i feel like it's a win-win because he can be like eye rolly about it but like this is something that my parents did to me but ultimately it's like really charming and endearing and it's so much better than most middle names and she was like hard pass so if memory serves, I pitched that her middle name was Adventure and Tara was like, or someone else was like, what about Danger? Because Danger is my middle name is even better. And, and I think by then, Monty and Celeste were relatively baked and it felt like, oh yes, they would definitely go with, it was a Monty idea. And Celeste kind of like exacted some toll for, for that. But then everything sort of like clicked in. Um, and, uh, and there you have it. Amazing. 
Oh man, thank you both so much. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you for your interest and your kindness.